So we continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel, looking at the life of David. We're going to look at chapter 20 this morning. And as we look at this episode in the life of David, we should keep in mind that God from eternity had purposed to bless David and to use him mightily. And we have seen already God established David as a man after his own heart while he was just a shepherd boy. And we have seen God call and anoint David to be the king. And and we've seen God raise up David as a champion of Israel and deliver Goliath into his hands. And we have seen God preserve David's life from uh, and give him a song of gladness, even in the face of death. But at this particular point, we find David going through a trial which tested his faith and his endurance to the limit. A time when every outward circumstance seemed to contradict God's plan for David's life. And his circumstances made the promises of God look like lies. And that can happen to us at times as well. Where everything in our lives seems just is going in a direction where it just doesn't make sense. And those circumstances can seem to contradict the plan that God has for us. And it's in those circumstances that we have to come to that place where we have to decide what are we going to be ruled by? Are we going to be ruled by our circumstances that presently make no sense to us? Or are we going to be ruled by what we know to be true about the Lord? I remember a time in my life a few years back when there was a lot going on in my life that I just didn't understand. A time when I just didn't understand what God is doing. I didn't understand what direction he was leaning in. I didn't understand certain things that were happening. And I literally at times felt abandoned by God. And I remember going down to the beach one particular day and just went down there to pray. And I was sitting there just telling God, God, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. You're not making sense to me. And at that moment, a jet flew overhead. And God said to me, you don't understand that. You don't understand how that thing flies, and yet you will get on one, and you will fly, not even thinking about it, trusting that that plane is going to take you to your destination. Can't you trust me? Can't you trust me that I am going to take you to your destination? And as I sat there, looking out over the ocean, I began to to just think about how God keeps all of that water from just enveloping the land. And, and I don't understand that either. I look out at the ocean. I, I understand that there's millions and millions and billions maybe of gallons of water there. And yet it doesn't come and just overtake the land. And, and, and I don't really understand that. But I go down. I don't even think about it. I never go to the beach and, and worry about you know, the being overtaken by the ocean. I just enjoy it. And it was there at that moment that, got, that it hit me that there's always going to be things. There's going to be a lot of things about God that I just don't understand. And there's going to be a lot of things that he is doing that, that I don't understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. But I need to trust in what I do know. I need to trust in what I do know to be true about the Lord. And I want to trust that as he promised, he is going to get me to the destination. That he has laid out for me. And in the process, I just want to enjoy what it is that he is doing. Listen, if you don't understand the circumstances in your life right now that you find yourself in, you need to cling to what you do know to be true about the Lord. That God is faithful. 
that God loves you, that our God is a God who keeps his promises and that true and righteous are his ways and that he is always working with your best interest in mind in everything that he does. Now, when I look back at my life and I look back at that particular time and season in my life, as I look back at it now, I see exactly what God was doing. It makes total sense to me now. I look back at that time now and I think, God, you're brilliant. It was perfect and things have turned out way better than I ever imagined. Joseph had that same realization in his life when he finally, after all the years of suffering, he ends up there in the palace and his brothers come to him and they think that he he reveals himself. They think that he is going to kill them. And, And he says, you know, what you did, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good that many could be saved. He understood When it was all said and done, looking back, he understood what God was doing. He saw the purpose in it. And David will look back at this time in his life and he will see and understand that God's hand was in it. How God was actually going to use this time to make David into Israel's greatest king of all time. Except for our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Sometimes in the midst of the trial... Sometimes in the midst of the circumstances, it can be tough. And in this chapter, we see David struggling. Now, it's a comfort for me to know that even a man such as David, even a man of God such as David was, that he could struggle and buckle under pressure. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that what is written in the Old Testament has been given to us for the purpose of of an example that we should learn from their lives, from their victories, as well as from their defeats, from their mistakes. And as we look at David's life, we have the advantage of, of seeing the whole picture here in David's situation. We can see that David should have known that God's anointing upon his life meant that Saul couldn't kill him. That Saul wasn't going to be able to touch him because he was God's choice to be king. And we see that the pressure doesn't change the promises. We can see that. But David didn't in the midst of it. And I pray as we look at this episode in David's life that we would be strengthened and we would be comforted. But we would also learn what David learns during this time, that we would learn it now and and we wouldn't make the same mistakes that we see that he begins to make here that are going to progress into the next few chapters after this. So we pick up here in chapter 20, verse 1, we read, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said, by no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Notice the tone here in David's voice. David was uptight. He was even despairing. The strong assurance recorded in Psalm 59 that we looked at on Wednesday night, which was written during the events that took place in chapter 19, that strong assurance, it's gone now. 
It's not there anymore. And David is at this place where the pressure is building. And as the pressure is building, he isn't handling it very well because David was not as conscious of God's presence and protection as he was of his own fear. And it's been said that fear is the greatest enemy of our faith. Max Lucado, in one of his books, said, Fear doesn't want you to make the journey to the mountain. If he can rattle you enough, fear will persuade you to take your eyes off the peaks and settle for a dull existence in the flatlands. Fear can be the greatest enemy of our faith. It can keep us from wanting to climb, from wanting to go forward, from wanting to take risks, from wanting to to step out and allow God to work in us and to work through us. Fear can get us to that place where we avoid the mountains and we just want a real calm, quiet, comfortable existence. At this point in David's life, the pressure is building so bad that he's even beginning to doubt his friend Jonathan. And so he says to Jonathan, what have I done? What iniquity is in me, verse 1, that that your father should treat me like this. Now in verse 2, Jonathan tries to, to encourage David by saying, look, my dad would tell me if he was going to do something to you. And remember, in chapter 19, Saul made a, a promise to Jonathan that he was going to leave David alone. And Jonathan's banking on that. He's resting on that. He's saying, look, my dad would tell me. He's, he's, that's over with. He's done with that. But then in verse 3, David basically says, look, your dad knows our relationship. He knows the favor that that I've found in your eyes. So get real, Jonathan. You know as well as I know there was but one step between me and death. David is just discouraged beyond all get out here. He is just despairing. But notice Jonathan's response, verse 4. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you desire, I will do for you. And here we see in Jonathan that Jonathan is a picture really of what the Christian's love should be for Christ. Jonathan's love for David is a wonderful picture for us of what our love should be for Jesus. Think about it. Jonathan lived for David. Jonathan's soul was chained to the soul of David. His personal loss was David's gain. Jonathan, as we look at this story, seems to always to be giving, but at the same time, he is receiving because for David to receive glory was Jonathan's glory, but also David's sorrow was Jonathan's sorrow. And it was risky for for Jonathan to do what was necessary to help David and to protect him. It would threaten his relationship with his father. It would, would, would threaten or it would, in doing so, he would risk personal loss. It would risk, be the risk of comfort. It would inconvenience him on a physical level. But the love of David, the love of Jonathan that he had for David is what constrained him to take this risk. And so too, in Jonathan's love, we see a parallel of what our love should be, what the Christian's love should be for Christ. The mark of the Christian is to delight in doing the will of God. The mark of the Christian is to live, to please Jesus Christ, rejoicing in God's victories. The mark of the Christian is that when God is glorified, he is pleased. When Jesus was on the earth, his passion was to please his heavenly father. 
His pursuit was that God would be glorified, that his father in heaven would be glorified. That, that too should be our passion. That too should be our pursuit, that we would desire that God would be glorified in our lives. And, and Jesus said this in John 15, in this the father is, is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And we bear much fruit as we determine in our hearts and our lives that we want to please Jesus, that we want to live for Jesus above everything else. But there are risks that come with living that type of life and following Christ in that type of way. Friends will forsake you. Family members won't understand you. Fellow employees will exclude you. But just like Jonathan was motivated by his love for David, Paul said this of us, that it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's as we see how much Christ loves us, as we see and understand what he has done for us, as we look at the cross and we realize that Jesus died there in our place, that he took our punishment, that he bore upon himself our pain. And that because he loves us, he has promised a prepared place for us there in heaven. That should just motivate us and encourage us and stir us and constrain us to love him with everything that is within us. And so Jonathan in living to please David is a good picture of what our relationship should be like with Christ. Jonathan says, whatever you desire, that's what I'm going to do. And so we continue verse five. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I might may hide in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice for all the family. And if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. And then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety and the Lord will be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I live that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now, Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him for he loved him as his own soul. Now, in this, we, we see that Jonathan had a greater faith in God's promises than David did at this time. 
Jonathan knows, he believes that David is destined to be king. And in response, Jonathan makes David commit himself in a covenant that you shall not cut off your kindness from my house or towards my house forever. You see, in that day when one royal family replaced another, it was common that the, the royal family that was replacing the one that was previously there would kill anyone left in that family who was a potential ruler, a potential heir. They would go and kill all of them. And Jonathan knew that one day David and his descendants were going to rule over Israel. And so he wants David's promise that David and his descendants will not kill or mistreat the descendants of Jonathan. And so they make this covenant with each other and Jonathan and David agreed to care for one another. But here we see Jonathan, he's encouraging David by saying this because he knows you're going to be the king. And let's make this back that when you are, that you are kind to my family, that you're not going to cut off my descendants. And so Jonathan agreed to care for David in the face of Saul's threats to warn him, to seek to protect him. And David agreed to care for Jonathan and his family there in the future. And so they devised this plan. Let's notice and see what happens. Verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the, of the deed and remain by the stone of Ezel. And then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way for the Lord has sent you away. Then as for the for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. David had to wait for that fateful moment when a matter of a few yards would decide his future. Either he would go back to Saul's house, back to the comfort of Jonathan's friendship, back to familiar and secure surroundings, or he would go into exile without a friend to turn to. Having to cast himself totally upon the mercy of God. One or the other of these ways was to be God's path for David. But it was a path that would lead him eventually to the throne of Israel. But here's the thing. The decision at this point is completely out of David's hands. All he could do was to stand and wait by a stone for an arrow that would point to the palace or to the wilderness. The pressure of the circumstances brought David to that place where the decision was not his to make. And that's exactly what God does through our circumstances at times. He brings us to a place or they drive us to a place where we cannot decide. Where we don't have the ability to choose. That we don't know which way that we should go or which way we are going to go. And it brings us to a place where only God can decide the way. Notice in verse 19, David was told to wait at the stone of Ezel. That word Ezel means the stone that shows the way. Or the stone of destiny. 
And for every Christian in every circumstance of life, we have a stone to wait at, a stone of destiny, a stone that shows the way. Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 verse 34, he tells us that it's a stone that is cut without hands. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he tells us, or he calls it a living stone. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 26, verse 16, he calls it a foundation stone, a precious stone, a cornerstone, a sure foundation. What is that stone that we have? Actually, we should say, who is that stone? Because it's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is our stone of Ezel. Listen to what Alan Redpath wrote in his book, The Making of a Man of God. He said, Jesus is our stone of destiny rooted in a rugged hillside outside the city of Jerusalem. There we understand that he bore our burden, that he is the great burden bearer. The pressure of the burdens we face, no matter what they may be, are rolled away when we bring them and leave them at his feet. Because we know that Jesus bore our pain, because he went to that rugged cross and was hung there on that hillside outside of Jerusalem, we know because he did that for us that any burden now that we have, any care, any concern, any time that we are in that place where we need direction, that we need to know about our destiny, that, that we can come to him and he is that, that stone that we can wait by, that he is that place of refuge and that place of rest and that place where direction can be found because he loved us so much to die for us. He's not going to leave us to ourselves now. But he is committed to us. He's committed to doing that work in us. And I ask you this morning, are you in a predicament that you are unable to turn to this way or that way? And you don't know which way to go. Understand that that is a glorious position to be in when your hands are off the situation and only he can guide. Only he can work. And all you can do is what David did. As he took his stand at his stone of destiny and waited. It's a good thing to be in that place, in that position, when all you can do is take your stand there at Calvary and wait for God to work. When all you can do is come to Christ and wait upon Him, you are in a great place. But know this, it is a hard place. Because there are so many paths out there that seem much more attractive, that seem much more attractive to us than waiting there upon the Lord. And humanly speaking, there are many alternatives more attractive than, than God's way. But there is only, listen, there is only one way that leads to the throne, that leads to that place of promise that God has for you. There is only one path. All other paths are frauds. They're phonies. The other night we were at some friends and our kids were watching one of these, you know, kid movies. And in the movie, these these characters had this uh, they were going on this journey. They were going on this trip and there was a sign that said shortcut. And they thought, you know, should we take it? And they decided to take it. But as they took that shortcut, it brought them right back to where they started. And that's how we are at times. We go through life and we're on that path and we see something that we think this is going to be a shortcut and we venture off and we start heading down that path, but it brings us right back to where we started because listen, there is only one path that will bring you to that throne, that'll bring you to that place of destination, that will bring you to that place of promise that God has ordained for you and you can't run from it. God loves you enough that wherever you go, whichever path that you try to take, that he's going to bring you back to that place where you have to walk the path that he has ordained for your life. 
Alan Redpath again said this. A throne is God's purpose for you. A cross dying to that temptation to go to another path, to meander, to run from the path that God has for you. A cross, he said, is God's path for you. And faith is God's plan for you. A throne is God's purpose for you. A cross is God's path for you. And faith is God's plan. Where you put your faith and your trust and you say, Lord, I'm going to lean and trust upon you in the midst of this. And this is where God is bringing David at this point. Notice verse 24. Then David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. And now the king sat on his seat as at other times. On the seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day. For he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me go away and see my brothers. And therefore he has not come to the king's table. And then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul and said to him, why should he be killed? What has he done? And then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. And so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no, no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. So Jonathan and David come up with this plan. Now, most commentators believe, and I agree with them, that David actually did go down to Bethlehem. That is implied, I think, in verse 19, where he says, you know, that you can go down and then you can come up and hide yourself in this place. And I think David came back at the appointed time to wait there in the field. So this wasn't, you know, a lie that they were throwing out here at Saul. But when Saul finds out about this, he is incensed. He is angry and he yells at Jonathan. He calls him the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now, this was a horrible statement to make because it had the implications or what Saul was suggesting is that Jonathan was the son of a whore, that there was no royal blood in his veins. That's what what Saul was saying when he made that statement. He's like saying, you son of a whore. You have no, you know, blood in your veins. The kingdom is never going to be yours, especially as long as David is alive. So bring him here. And, and Jonathan, he, he said, no way. Now, F.B. Meyer said these were taunts that were intended to instill into Jonathan's heart the poison which was working in Saul's heart. And that poison was running so thick in Saul's veins that he even throws a spear at his own son. But notice verse 34. It says of Jonathan, 
that he grieved for David. This blows my mind. This guy was some, he was something else, Jonathan. He's not grieving. Man, my dad just threw a spear at me. He's not grieving. He called me the son of a whore. He's, he's not grieving because of that. I would have been, but he's not. He's grieving because he knew what this meant for David. He knew that this meant that David was going to go, that David was going to be sent away, that David was going to become a fugitive. And it broke his heart. It grieved his heart. Let's continue on. Verse 35. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out to the field at the time appointed with David. And a little lad was with him. And then he said to the lad, now run and find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, make haste and hurry. Do not delay. And so Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and he came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. And then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and he said to him, go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together. But David more so. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And so he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Picture here, David waiting here at the stone of Ezel. From a distance, he hears his friend Jonathan coming. And Jonathan, as if he's going to, you know, take part target practice, he shoots an arrow. And David watches anxiously as it flies, as it arches over him and beyond him. And imagine his feeling at that moment as he knew that it meant the Lord was sending him away. That the Lord was sending him on. Such a small thing, the signal of a single arrow told David that his whole life would be changed forever, that he would no longer be welcome at the palace, that he would no longer be welcome in the king's army, that he would no longer be able to go home. And David now knew that he would have to live as a fugitive on the run from an angry and jealous king who was determined to destroy him. And the same thing is true in our lives. Sometimes our lives can radically turn on one small thing. One moment, one thing can just alter our life in a drastic way. One careless night can change a young girl's life forever. One night out with a group of friends, the wrong kind of friends, can cause a young man to get an arrest record. And oftentimes it doesn't seem fair that so much in life should turn on small moments. But a lifetime is made up of nothing but many small moments. That's all that our life is. Little moments, little decisions. And our life, our family can be incredibly altered in one moment when, when we give in to a temptation that we shouldn't. In one moment where the flesh can get the best of us, our whole life can suddenly change. Now, praise God that his grace can cover those moments 
That they can't necessarily affect our eternal destiny with Him. But oh, our lives here on this earth can be radically altered by just single moments. And that's why we need to guard those moments. Because a lifetime is made up of nothing but small moments brought together. Now, in David's case, it was no chance thing that the arrow fell where it did. It had come from the hand of God. Oh, the arrows weren't just from the hand of Jonathan. He was just the instrument. The arrow was from the hand of God, and it was right on target. And it showed David what God's will was for his life. And God will use different instruments in our lives. Maybe it's the words of a friend. Maybe it's a doctor's diagnosis. Maybe it's the instructions of an employer who says, you know what, we're going to have to to move your family to another state. Or I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to lay you off. And just in that little moment, in that little thing, in that those words that were spoken, suddenly our life can be altered. But know this, behind that arrow was God's loving purpose for David's life. And behind those arrows, behind those words, behind those instructions are God's loving purpose for your life. If David lingered now after this word from heaven, he would lose his life. He would lose his crown. He would lose all that God had for him. It was of divine necessity that he move. But it was here at this time that every security that he had, every prop that David leaned upon was taken away from his life. And sometimes we can have the tendency to fill our lives with crutches, with people or things that we are leaning upon. And sometimes those crutches can become substitutes for God in our lives, where instead of leaning upon him, we are leaning upon something else or we're leaning upon someone else. Some people, they turn to other people to be their crutches, a friend, a spouse, or maybe an inappropriate relationship where you are sharing your heart with somebody of the opposite sex. And those of you here who are married, I want to caution you. I want to warn you that you should never be doing that because the Bible says, Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is going to be there also. And if you are sharing your heart, you are sharing your treasure with someone other than your spouse. Know this, it will only be a matter of time if that continues that your heart is going to follow. Boy, I like the way that he listens to me. Boy, I like the way that she listens to me. And we can have that tendency. Some turn to booze, to alcohol or to drugs. Oh, it makes me relax. It, it takes away the stress. And, and, and you know, people tell me that and I'll say, try reading your Bible. Put on some praise music. Turn to the Lord to relieve that stress. Come home and pick up the word or, or put on a tape and spend some time with the Lord and watch and see how he can relax you and bring that peace upon you. For some, maybe it's working out. They go to the gym and they just, you know, anything to just distract them from all the things going on in their lives for an hour or two. And for others, it's work. It's easier 
to work 70 hours a week than to go home and deal with a, a marriage that is crumbling or a teenager that's in trouble or, you know, some other crisis that is going on in the family. But crutches have a tendency to keep our focus horizontal. You see, when you are leaning on another person or another thing, your, your focus is always sideways. It's horizontal rather than vertical. But those crutches that we can lean on in our lives, they, are only, they only bring us temporary relief. They're like a, a, an aspirin that masks the pain. They're, it's like a, a tranquilizer that just kind of, you know, it makes us feel good for a little period of time. But God isn't interested in bringing temporary relief into our lives. He wants to bring a permanent solution. And so if we truly seek him, if we surrender all to him, if we are consistent and diligent in coming to him in the word and in prayer, God is going to meet us. God is going to give us the direction. If we place ourselves and plant ourselves at our stone of destiny there alongside the cross of Calvary, knowing that because of this, I know that you are with me. I know that you love me. I know that you are for me and I am going to wait and trust in your plan to be unfolded because the Bible says that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. At this point in David's life, it was just he and God. That was all that he had. Every security he had, every prop that he leaned upon was taken away and he must stand alone with God. Behind him was the comfort of his friendship with Jonathan it was the comfort of his home life. It was the familiarity of his army buddies. But now David had nothing but God. And it's an eye-opening thing when God brings you to a place and allows you to see that there are other things that you are leaning on instead of him. It happened to me when I moved from here to Oregon back in 1991. And after being on staff here for almost seven years and, and, and being, you know, just seeing what, what God was doing here and being a part of, of moving, you know, from the little church on Hacienda over to here and being involved in mission things and doing high school and college ministry and all of that. You know, I came to this place where, you know, there's always a lot going on here. There's always a lot of exciting things taking place and, 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 it, and it was a, a great place to be. But then I went to Oregon and and, you know, the first six months or a year, I mean, there wasn't a lot happening. There's like 30 people in the church and, and I'm there just kind of going, you know, you know, what am I doing here? And people would call from here and they would say, you know, hey, how's it going? Well, you know, it's going OK, kind of slow. But, you know, it's just, you know, I think God's doing something, I think, you know, and 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 and, and then, you know, they start talking about all the stuff that God was doing here. Always had Harvest Crusade. and We just went to Russia and we're, you know, we're going here and God's doing this. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, what am I doing in Oregon? God's in California, you know. <laughs> And finally, in just a very, very down time, I went to this lake and I'm sitting there with God. And I say to the Lord, I say, God, what is happening? Why am I here? What are you doing? And God spoke to my heart and he showed me my heart. He said, Rob, Rob, he said, Rob what would you do if I took everything away? The ministry, the church, your family, and it was just you and I. Could you find your sense of joy and satisfaction in me alone, 
in just me. And it was then that it hit me because I had to answer truthfully, no. And it was there that it hit me that, that in many of the, my, my final years here, that my sense of joy and satisfaction had come from being involved in what God was doing. And you'd go to a retreat that you planned and you'd watch God bless. And it was like, oh, that was wonderful and exciting. And you'd come back and you'd ride that high for weeks on end. And then by the time you started to come down, there was another, you know, outreach or something that was happening. And, and it was just a series of these type of things, one after the other, all the time that, that brought me that sense of joy and satisfaction and purpose. And my purpose wasn't in God. It was in really being used by God. It was in watching, you know, what God God was doing and not in him alone. And he brings me to this place, takes everything away. And I I began to see that that was a crutch in my life. I was leaning upon experiences instead of leaning upon God and looking to God and resting in God. And God brings David to this place where all he can do is lean upon the Lord. And so this chapter ends with These words concerning David, that he arose and departed. David will not return to a normal life until Saul is dead and he is king. This is a pretty bleak road that David was embarking upon, but it was God's road for him. It was a pretty bleak road that he was setting out on, but... It was an important road in David's life because God would put him in this place where he must learn. If other people were going to depend upon David, David would have to come to this place where he would learn to depend upon God alone. Not Jonathan, not Saul, not his own ability. It was a bleak road in David's life, but it was an important road because it was during this time that God would keep David safe until he could be promoted as king. And it was here that David would learn that He wasn't going to be the one who would promote himself, but it would be God who would promote him. And it was a bleak road in David's life that he was about to set out on. But it was an important road because it was in this time that that David, before he was to be set in this great position of authority, that David must learn to submit to God's authority, even if it meant leading him out to this place that he didn't understand. That he didn't know what God was going to do, but he was going to cling to what he knew to be true of the Lord. Has the road become bleak for you? Have the circumstances in your life brought you to a place where the road just looks bleak? Remember, a throne is God's purpose for you. A cross is God's path for you. Dying to that very temptation to run and take an alternative route. And faith is God's plan for you. That you trust God. That you lean upon what you know to be true and trust that God is faithful. That he keeps his promises. Are you in a place where your future is up in the air? Can I encourage you today to take your place to take your stand at your stone of Ezel and there commit yourself to wait on the one who loves you 
so much that he died for you and he has promised to go ahead of you, that he has prepared a place for you and that he said, I will receive you to myself. He has a destiny. He has a plan. Rest in him. Come to that place and set yourself there by that stone, by your firm foundation, Jesus Christ, and say, Lord, I don't understand what's going on, but I understand you and I trust you and I'm going to cling to you. And he will be faithful. And you will look back in two months or two years or five years or ten years and say, I didn't understand it then, but God, I see now exactly what you were doing. And God, it was brilliant. Let him do that work in you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you are that rock of refuge that we can cling to, that we can run to. And when circumstances look bleak, when the road looks difficult, Lord, help us not to look for shortcuts. When we don't know where to go, Lord, may we run to that stone of destiny, your son, And find our place of rest and refuge in the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.